I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. All right. Uh, well, let's just pick up where we left off last time, because last episode we were finally getting into the story of Clara. Uh, Clara, for those who are joining us for the first time, I met her in New York, where I ordinarily live in January. She was visiting from San Francisco for work, and she came to a show I was performing on. We started talking afterwards, and it was just a really, really strong connection immediately. We talked for hours that night, and we wound up hanging out for the remainder of her visit. She was there for another four or five days. Um, she stayed over at my place for most of those nights, and just really, yeah, a special connection, something that I've, I've rarely experienced. She came back to visit me in New York in February, and we talked about that visit last episode, so I won't get into too much detail here, but it was, well, initially it was a little bit challenging just because of frankly, some of my own OCD, but then that passed and we had a really wonderful visit in February and we were both looking forward to March because coincidentally, I was supposed to be out in San Francisco from mid-March doing shows for several months and we were really looking forward to living in the same city for the first time and not having to do these intense concentrated visits. And then of course, the coronavirus pandemic hit and a couple of nights before I was supposed to go out to San Francisco, I got word that my shows were canceled. And so I had a decision to make, which was basically, do I come out anyway? And really the only reason I'd be coming out at that point would be to, to see Clara. But in the context of the lockdown that was about to happen in San Francisco, seeing someone really means quarantining with them. So that was, that was the decision I was facing. And, um, Oh no, this was, sorry, we didn't get to this. We didn't get to Clara at all last episode. Last episode, we talked about the two most significant relationships I had prior to Clara, but we did not get into Clara at all. Uh, I think I think we need to do over for this one. What do you think? Doctor? Uh, I think we can keep rolling with it and just accept the inevitable imperfections of life and art. Okay. But whatever. All right, we'll... We'll keep, I think we got the broad parameters. For those I, I want to talk, I do want to talk about the New York visit because that was a significant one. Okay, let's go back to it. Jump back a little bit. All right, all right. I'm going to start again just because I feel like, or we can just keep rolling and edit potentially, or maybe this makes the final edit. All right, let's just keep going. So, for those listening at home, <laughs> this is not the first time. <laughs> Such a conversation between Adam Strauss and myself, Dr. Jordan Iper, has occurred regarding the decision don't, of whether... Don't give to... yourself some legitimacy with a doctor, please, <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're going to keep going. Dr. Iper, Dr. Iper does speak the truth. And if we're going here for a little bit, so yeah, I tried to start my own podcast more than a year ago. And this is what I was stymied by is this perfectionism where I would find myself the, the beauty of, of live performance, which is really all I do under normal circumstances is that if you don't like the way it's going, I can't just say to the audience, all right, wait, 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 hold up everyone. Just, just, uh, you know what? Everyone leave the room and come back. Here. We're going to start <laughs> again from the beginning. 
I have to roll with the punches. The danger of this medium is we're recording and there is the temptation to say, no, no, let, let's start over again. So if you're hearing this, then Dr. Iper effectively talked me down from that ledge. It's an exposure. And if you're not hearing this, well, then there's nothing more to say because you're not hearing this. It brings up, you know, one of the mainstays of conventional OCD treatment, which is exposure and response prevention. That's kind of the, you know, that's the name of, as I understand it, the main psychotherapy for OCD. And it's basically force yourself to do the thing that causes you the anxiety. Yeah. You probably have much yeah, more like, understanding of it than I do. Yeah. With classic OCD, the example would be with someone who has, say, contamination fear, you would. It's funny because talking about this stuff now, it doesn't seem crazy, but under ordinary non COVID 19 pandemic situations, a typical exposure for someone who has contamination fear is okay, ride the subway and touch the subway pole and don't wash your hands. Just sit with the anxiety. And then it escalates. Then the next session, ride the subway and actually touch the floor and don't wash your hands. <laughs> That's intense. And I know therapists who have escalated to the point where they will lick the subway pole with their patient. With their patient. That's dedication. Yeah. Yeah. The, the most impressive one I heard was a therapist out of Chicago whose name unfortunately escapes me, a really gifted, compassionate therapist. I was so impressed by him. When we do the mushroom cure, often we'll have talkbacks with, usually it's people in the psychedelic community, but uh -huh. sometimes it's, as psychedelics have gotten more and more mainstream, more conventional therapists have been more willing to um, associate themselves with me and my work. <laughs> and this particular therapist in Chicago was dealing with a patient where her OCD, and this is a very common form, is harming OCD. Uh, Essentially, fear that you're going to hurt someone else. So this person, her OCD fear that absolutely dominated her life was that she was going to push someone in front of, I want to say subway, but it's I think it's the L is what they call it in Chicago, the, the mass uh, transit train system uh -huh. in Chicago. And someone without OCD might hear that and say, well, just don't stand too close to the platform. There's little interventions you can do seemingly to logically negate that fear, but it does not work because OCD is always about finding a chink in the armor, finding some way that the bad thing can still happen. So for this person, it wasn't just that she couldn't ride the train in Chicago. She couldn't go near any stations because the fear would take over. Well, what if I unconsciously kind of on autopilot walk into the station and push mm -hmm. someone? So she had to avoid entire areas of Chicago. So it mm. completely shut down her life. What this therapist did, <laughs> this is balls, man. <laughs> he spent four hours with this woman standing in front of her as wow. trains <laughs> rush into the station. <laughs> I mean, that is that is profound confidence in yourself, really, as your therapy, that you think you, you know this patient well enough. That is and amazing. after four hours, yeah, four <laughs> hours of this patient standing behind him, could have pushed any time, he finally turned around to her and said, how do you feel? And Oof. she felt free. Wow, wow. And that's the nature of exposure response prevention. And so, yes, what Dr. Iper says probably does hold some water in this case. My, The fear, I don't know if I'd classify it exactly as OCD, but it's certainly a close cousin of OCD, is the fear of not doing this perfectly, not doing this yeah. right. Yeah. So, 
my my exposure with you is pretty paltry in comparison to risking life and limb on a subway platform but let's right. keep the tape rolling let's keep the tape keep rolling, rolling keep the imperfections in and uh tell me more about clara yeah so so a new york so we got a little ahead of ourselves yeah. so right so we meet in new york early january just really wonderful connection a really special connection for both of us we were already making plans at the end of that visit for her to come back. She came back mid-February, and as soon as she walks in the door, the doubts start. The fault finding starts. And I love that because I, it's like, last when you say that slowly, the sort of the movie image that <laughs> one has as you say that is like she walks in the door and the doubts just fall away <laughs> oh right <laughs> but this is right, the opposite <laughs> she walks in the door the light is just perfect the e the, the that illuminates the fact that her left eyebrow is slightly <laughs> slightly and uneven I see, I see i see this one stray eyebrow hair <laughs> And I know she's not the one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to get into the specific doubts because yeah. I don't want to give them any credence. But I will give you an example of the sort of and doubt I you don't want have. to sound like a monster. I don't want to sound like a monster. But part of me, when I say that, I do want to because I do want to own all of this. Yeah. Because I will say, I don't think I have a choice of right. my mind doing these things any more than that woman had a choice of her mind throwing up this possibility of pushing someone in front of the subway. She didn't wake up that morning and say, you know what? I want to be tormented right. by doubts about I'm going to push someone in front of the subway. Yeah. We talked about this a few episodes ago that if there's one thing that we can get across to people with this podcast, it's that every single person on the planet has thoughts in their head that make them feel like a total monster. And we do ourselves no favors by trying to just push them down deeper into the closet and ignore them. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. And, but having said that, I won't get into the specific ways I'm a monster because, <laughs> well, two reasons. Candidly, Clara could listen to this of and I, I don't want, but also because it's not really specifically yeah. relevant. This is what my mind does, but I will give an example of, you don't want to fuel the fire. Yeah. Right. I don't want to give it any sort of legitimacy yeah, because, yeah. of course, this feels real to me. That's the same way it feels real to that woman that she really is going to push someone. That's yeah. what makes OCD so just insidious is you really, really, really believe these things. But the doubts themselves can be just comically inconsequential. I'll give you an example in a different context. So one of the worst OCD crises I went through was in 2009. This is when the OCD was at its peak and I had to move to a new apartment and it completely took over signing leases, breaking leases, moved into a place, moved out of the place, just totally out of control. I, I had a day job at that point. I was at risk of getting fired because I was so mired in this obsession and I'm looking at an apartment and I really like it. It's quiet. It gets a lot of light. It's large for the price. All this stuff I like. And then as I walk out of this apartment and I get to the curb, I realize the sidewalk is just regular concrete. Now, this is in Brooklyn Heights where Jordan once lived. I don't know if you remember this, Jordan, but Brooklyn Heights being a very long settled neighborhood, 
many of the houses and buildings there, they have these slate sidewalks. Instead of concrete or asphalt, they have these slabs of slate, uh-huh. these big square slabs of slate that constitute the sidewalk. And there's something kind of nice about it. It's It, it <laughs> harkens back to a time where even that sort of work was done by hand. It's aesthetically, I'd say, a little bit more pleasing than this bumpy asphalt. But it's not something you notice on a day-to-day basis, and it certainly is not a factor, I'd say, in most people's decision. But walking out of this apartment and noticing it didn't have a slate sidewalk, it had this old regular asphalt, I suddenly felt this sharp pain of anxiety, like, wait, am I going to take this place that has a, a suboptimal sidewalk? I don't know. Like, I want a place that has the best possible sidewalk. <laughs> and that was suddenly a factor for me. And it's that level of nitpicking that the OCD can do. Uh So let's just say it's analogous to that stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. But in the moment, as Clara walks in the door, there's just these, these doubts coming in and it was painful. And my mind just starts running with it and starts looking at it like, Oh wow. You know, I really thought this was going to be something, but clearly no, you know, there's all these things that are, that are wrong with this situation, wrong with the relationship, wrong with her. And she arrived to stay with you. Yes. She was going to be staying with me for five days. That detail feels significant because it's, there's pressure and she's in your space. Yep. That is uh, an excellent point. When she was, when we'd met in January, there was no pressure. It was just getting to know each other. And now precisely there is pressure. There is a degree of expectation, even though, as I related last episode, in contrast to the way I've often been in the past in relationships, in this case, I really was able to not engage in this sort of future tripping and kind of thinking about, oh, this is going to go great. We're going to, she's the one we're going to spend our lives together or conversely, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere and don't put any hope on it. I was very able to, as we've been talking on the phone for the past month, Clara and I, from when we met to this visit, really just kind of stay present and have an orientation of more than anything else, I would say curiosity, feeling like I'm enjoying getting to know this woman and I'm curious to see where it goes. And if it goes somewhere deep and long lasting, wonderful. But if it doesn't, that's also fine. Mm-hmm. And I think that also reflects who she is. She's is grounded the right word. She just, I have a lot of appreciation and respect for her. And she just seemed very level headed about how we were approaching this whole thing with really unbridled enthusiasm for each other, but also being careful not to just indulge in fantasy. And as I related last episode, part of that was even very strictly limiting our phone time together so that we don't build up these sort of avatars of each other based on talking on the phone and instead allow the relationship to take root in the soil of our actual in-person interactions. Extremely relevant topic in the time of coronavirus. (laughs) Right. Yes, there was no, we did not want a socially distanced um, (laughs) relationship to develop because as I've found in the past with long distance relationships, that can become an impediment to actually getting to know the real person in the flesh. Yeah. So she walks in the door and these doubts set in. And yeah, I think you're right, Jordan. I think a big part of it was, oh, now there's, she's here for a few days. We kind of have to get along. And I've certainly had this happen before with women where everything is great. And then as the stakes start to rise, my mind starts finding flaws with the relationship and or with them. And in the past, 
I wasn't really able to separate from that. I pretty much believed my mind. I just accepted my mind. What it told me is this is information. This is reality. This time though, and this reflects a lot of the work I've done with psychedelics, therapy, different body awareness practices, meditation, yoga. There's a whole host of things that I, I think have encouraged this shift. Even though it felt really real to my, me, I was able to say, there was a little part of my mind that sa- was able to say, hey, this feels really real. I'm just muting because we have, for one moment, we have a lot of background noise, some kids running by. Fucking kids. I just wish the coronavirus targeted children. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear anything on my end. All right, all right. So in the past, I would buy what my mind was selling me. I didn't even know my mind was trying to sell me anything. I just thought this is reality. But thanks to all this work I've done, there's a little shred of awareness in the back of my head that said, okay, this feels really real right now, but that's the operative word. That's how it feels to you. Just sit tight. Don't don't mm-hmm. make any decisions because at the very least, acknowledge the fact that there is a long history of having this sort of pattern and, uh, of reacting in, in similar mm-hmm. situations. But it di- it was painful. It was painful. I'm there engaging with her and maybe 30 or 40% of my attention is on her and the conversation we're having. And the rest of it is just this internal monologue of, ooh, I don't know, this doesn't feel right. Uh, just this almost a feeling of suffocation is a little too strong, but just kind of wanting to distance myself. Yeah. That split mind. I remember I was in a, in a long relationship that I had periods of doubting a lot when I was in medical school. And I remember sitting and taking tests, like really, really difficult exams and just being blown away at how I could function as a medical student and still be devoting so much of my brain power to the question of should I stay in this relationship or is this relationship doomed? Like I remember one specific kidney test on the, <laughs> the physiology of the kidney and I was just like, this is incredible. You are sitting here for the and and for the millionth time trying to figure out if this relationship is gonna work out or not. Just <laughs> like just like you really gotta pass this test right now. Focus. <laughs> It reminds me of the story of when you were talking, it was reminding me of the story of Odysseus and the sirens. Ooh, Greek reference. Where you're going through you're going through the passage and Odysseus knows that the song of these sirens is going to be so seductive that he's going to want to, I don't know what he want, thought he was going to want to do, throw himself overboard into their mouths or something. So he has his men tie him to the mast, like plug his ears with wax or something. And I... As you were talking about the slender read of your awareness in that moment, I was imagining you like tied to this as the gale force winds of your obsessions blow <laughs> to and fro. And you're just like, hold on, just remember, like no, no part of you feels like it's right, but you're just white knuckle holding on to this mast for dear life. <laughs> That's exactly what it felt like. Yeah. Just hold on and hope this this storm passes. Hope yeah. the, the siren song abates. And I like that as a, a metaphor too, because there is something seductive about these thoughts, even though oh, they're yeah. painful. They're just so, those neural pathways are st- so well trod. And I yeah. just, I, I just slip into it. And there's a, it's, it's not comfortable, but it is familiar. It's, yeah. And in, in being familiar, it's safe. 
and their yeah their attempts to get certainty and certainty is safe like we were talking about the- last time with the you want certainty over whether or not there's a tiger in the bushes yeah and there's a deeper level of safety here too which is uh, we've talked about this a bit before i believe that the ocd also functions as a way to keep me alone because alone mm-hmm. is safe in the sense that i have a lot more control over my life and a lot less vulnerability when i'm alone as opposed to being in an intimate romantic relationship with someone else yeah and certainly the way that it's served to keep me alone is by finding all these reasons why, oh, this isn't the right person. This isn't the right person. That's not the right person. Oh, that one is the right person, but too bad she's has a boyfriend or is a lesbian. Yeah. How convenient. It is a pattern. It is definitely a pattern. So I'm lashed to the mast. My mind is trying to sing me to shipwreck. It's a, it's a Radiohead lyric referencing that. It's always a siren singing you to shipwreck. Oh, beautiful. Uh, yeah. And that's that's what it feels like. But I guess in this metaphor, the the rope lashing me to the mast would be that that bit of awareness that, okay, this is what your mind is doing. And it wasn't continuously painful, but it was continually painful. So that first day together, there were some sweet, beautiful moments of connection, but my, my mind was regularly popping back in with, yeah, yeah, man, I don't know about this one. And yeah, it, w- it wasn't easy. And so when I woke up the next morning, I did what I do pretty much every morning now, which is I meditate and then I pray is my morning ritual. And prayer... It's a difficult thing to talk about because people have so many associations when you say you pray. On yeah. one hand, there's the religious association. On the other hand, there's the woo-woo spiritu- spirituality association. And I don't want to go in either of those directions. What I'll say about prayer for myself, and it's very much an evolving practice and one that I've I've used to different degrees for almost a decade. I first came to prayer part of my recovery from OCD, we've talked about psychedelics a little bit, and that certainly has been instrumental, but I would say probably equally instrumental, and they've actually worked well together, has been a 12-step OCD program. Because you can certainly look at OCD as an addiction. Like every addiction, it's an attempt to avoid pain that works sometimes in the very short term, but then it creates more pain, which in turn feeds more of the behavior to try to avoid the pain. Is that classic vicious cycle. And so you can kind of take the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and substitute obsessions and compulsions for alcohol, and it works, and it works really well. And part of the 12-step thing, really the cornerstone of it is, is connecting to some sort of higher power, which doesn't have to be God. It can be nature. It can be your true self. It can be your intuition. It can be the 12-step group itself. But connecting to something, I, maybe the the most basic way I would define higher power is something that is outside of my ordinary conscious access. Hmm. I like that. I like that. I've, I've wrestled with the same question a lot in recent years of what is, what is spirituality? What is spiritual practice? Cause I think for a lot of people and for myself for a long time, I identified as someone who had a spiritual practice, but really what I was mostly talking about was just sort of basically a a mindfulness practice. 
and it didn't it didn't need need to incorporate for a long time anything other than my mind and my body and my own awareness and in more recent years and certainly influenced heavily by my plant medicine work i came to realize that like oh no spirituality is this other thing where you're trying to connect to something outside of yourself and i like how you put that outside of my conscious awareness because it doesn't because that if it's outside of your conscious awareness that doesn't necessarily require one to assume that we're talking about some metaphysical metaphysical thing outside of their body it doesn't necessarily have to challenge a materialist worldview which a lot of people are uncomfortable with i'm pretty down to go there these days but i think that for me spirituality has come to mean trying to connect to something bigger than myself whether yeah whether that's nature community purpose service energy god whatever yeah, I, I like that way of looking at it where it can even it even can be community. So for me, that definition of when I'm praying, what or whom am I praying to? This will be a rare moment where I don't want to go too much into it, partially because it's is still evolving for me, and partially because I feel like there's it feels like a very personal question in a way that it's, it's hard to let anyone else into that because mm -hmm. it it feels like I'm trying to cultivate a relationship with something and mm -hmm. I can't quite articulate, but my impulse is to not go too much into how I define that higher power. But I will say this, th at a very basic level, th I define it as I don't know. I don't know. At times it it, it shifts constantly for me. There are certainly times when I'm praying where it feels like a rote exercise. Then there are times when I'm praying where it feels like there is some sort of connection being forged or strengthened. But I could never say with any degree of certainty what that connection is with. I certainly, for me, it's not, at least at this stage, like, oh, I'm connecting to Jesus or Yahweh or Muhammad yeah. or the spirit of the universe. It's just a sense of trying to open up and connect to something that is not ordinarily accessible to me or that I am not ordinarily aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing your boundary there around how much you're willing to disclose about your prayer practice. I feel, I feel similarly about, I have most recently my meditation practice has been transcendental meditation and, um, a teacher and mentor of mine gave me a mantra and my, the, what my mantra is, I don't, I don't share that with anybody. It just, there are some things that need to be kept private inside of our minds. Jordan's mantra is mom, by the way, for those of you who are. <laughs> oh, fuck. Mom, mom. I forgot. I forgot. Or mommy. We're going to go infantile, mommy. <laughs> but also back to prayer, I feel my, my relationship with, prayer practice is very much evolving too and i also I, t I similar to you i have a meditation practice then i tack on five minutes of prayer in the morning some sort of prayer related thing Just pack on a few minutes of divinity <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it, it's not it's often it's loving kindness meditation <clears throat> 
which we've talked about like yeah meta loving kindness meditation may all beings be free may i be peaceful etc and i think it's an interesting and important question to wrestle with either publicly or inside oneself like what am i praying to but even in the absence of having an answer to that question prayer is just a powerful technology i think it's meditation just sort of awareness meditation is really building your concentration building your awareness is obviously the the backbone of it sounds like what we both do in our sitting practice and i think that's enormously beneficial for a lot of people but it's nice to at the end tack on a little bit of okay i'm not gonna i'm not just gonna sit here and be aware of what's going on and accept it and bring my attention to it i'm gonna try to change some shit right now like i'm gonna try to i'm gonna try to bring some spiritual firepower and if there's something inside me i don't want i'm gonna try to move it out it's an interesting way to look at it is kind of more of an active versus a passive practice meditation being the more passive is that what you're yeah i think that's how i'm i think that's how it's coming out i'm sure like (laughs) a proper meditator would would take issue with with the description of awareness or concentration meditation being a passive process but i think yeah as as i'm contrasting it with prayer receptive maybe receptive i like that receptive yeah which can always bring us back to our whole feminine masculine receptive but that 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 is a whole yeah that sounds scary let's get back to our let's get back to our minds (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's get back to our intellects where it's safe yeah i thought you were gonna say let's get back to our moms (laughs) 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 <laughs> which we will i mean really we all that's yeah that is the always the subtext here all roads lead to therapy. <laughs> but yeah for me one way i look at prayer sometimes is it really doesn't matter how i'm conceptualizing it it does two things for me so let me be a little more specific in terms of the sort of things i'll pray for i won't pray to win the lottery i'm not praying for specific outcomes <laughs> yeah yeah i'm praying for things that generally are theoretically within my control, but in actuality seem to be outside of my conscious control. So an example, a sort of steadfast element to my prayer practice is I will pray for the willingness to feel my feelings and to surrender to my experience. Mm -hmm. And when I'm praying like that, I find it does two things. One, it's telling me that I can't accomplish this via my conscious willpower Mm -hmm. the very act of asking for help for something or someone outside of me is saying hey i can't do this on my own and that in and of itself is a powerful shift for someone whose default orientation is i can control everything in the universe if i try hard enough if i obsess long enough and deep enough Uh the act of asking for help puts me in a posture of let's get back to that receptivity of openness mm-hmm. it also clarifies what i want it's saying this is important to me and i can't do this by my own conscious efforts and so that morning clara's second morning there i meditated and when i was praying i prayed for the willingness to open my heart to her and I prayed for the willingness to do that, even with the fear, because fear is almost always present when there's any sort of, not almost, it's always present when there's, when there's an obsession, it's trying to cover up or negate a fear. Yeah. Sometimes as I'm praying, I'll get these little, little pops of insight. 
And as I'm praying for the willingness to open my heart to her, even with the fear, I suddenly realize that one fear is just the fear that my mind is going to be throwing up these sort of objections and the fear that maybe she's not perfect because none of us are perfect and the fear that this may not unfold the way I want it to unfold. All these fears that my default is to cover up and close up and I want to be willing to open my heart to her. And as is often the case, the prayer worked. It could, again, just be a sort of cognitive explanation that by distancing myself from it, which the praying does, I get a new relationship to the OCD and it shifts. That's fine. That still means it worked. Or yeah, maybe there's an old dude with a beard in the clouds who listened and said, ah, you know what, Adam, I'm going to do you a solid. Let me, uh, let me <laughs> tap into your heart here. And it is open. Enjoy. Yeah, the, the, the white guy in the sky just t- twisted a few knobs. and Yeah. The boom, ultimate CEO. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate dad. We, you know, we already screwed Jew. him with the lips. <laughs> we, screw, we screwed him with the lips. Let's help him out here. <laughs> yeah. And it worked. It worked. It wasn't effortless, but that day, and again, it could have just been that I made a conscious choice that this is what I wanted, but that day, those objections and fault finding that my mind was doing so diligently, it just kind of started to drop away and I'm more and more present with her. And of course this, Mm. it's mutually feeding. She's more and more present with me and the magic is there, the same magic we had that first visit. And it was a really wonderful visit. She was there four or five days. And it was intense at times because we were spending almost all of our time with each other. But even that, I mean, she really does have this wisdom, this intuition where she could kind of sense when I was feeling that way. And I think part of that was she was probably feeling the same way too. And she would call it out and say, yeah, you know, this is a weird artificial situation. We wouldn't ordinarily be with each other Mm -hmm. 24-7 like this. Mm. And we talked also about how happy we were that in a month hence, we were going to be in San Francisco together where we could have more of a normal existence. Mm. I wanted to highlight something you just said because it's very relevant to my experience. You were feeling you were feeling away and then she commented on it because she was probably feeling it too. And I have had the experience so many times in my life and I think a lot of people have and I believe that it totally ties into the to my particular early life experiences in my family. I've had the experience so many times of misidentifying other people's emotions or collectively other people's emotions for my own. Being in a room, you know, just being in a room at a party and feeling anxious. And for most of my life until recently, I assumed that there was something wrong with me and that I was anxious. Why are you being so awkward? And, you know, as I've continued my work bit by bit, I've become more able to realize like, actually, no, you're a really sensitive, perceptive person. And I think that other per that person you were talking to, or that, that individual sitting next to you on a couch, that person was super uncomfortable and you were resonating with that. And there's this, um, I think a lot of people have this where there's sort of a porosity and emotions that are floating around in the environment around you can sort of catch or infect you to use meaning porous, you're porous to other people's experience. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I wonder, I would assume that you experience a lot of that too, of picking up someone else's anxiety and thinking 
that it's your own. I think there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I also think that what happens is when someone else is, this is maybe related to what you're saying, but a little bit different. When someone else is anxious, I tend to take it personally. I mm. tend to feel like, oh, they're feeling this way because it reflects on me in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Me too. It's all about me. My, me I've, I've, <laughs> I have that experience too. And it's, a hundred percent mom town <laughs> is it well yeah and it's origins well, right. let, yeah yeah let's 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 not let's let's take the long scenic route to momville because we have a few <laughs> a few stops to make in route but let's but take yes. the scenic route yeah but i i wanted to clarify a bit of what you were saying so are you so you're saying that oftentimes in a situation when you felt, oh, I'm being awkward and anxious, you're not actually awkward and anxious. You're just picking up on someone else who's that way. Yeah. I'll give you an example. A moment that taught me a lot about this happened in my own therapy where one day, I don't remember what Your I was therapy, meaning you, you as a, you as a client rather than yes. a, a dispenser of therapy. This was me being a receptacle of therapy. I was angsting about something or another. I was feeling a little off and I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I I think I commented that I wasn't, that I was feeling a little insecure or something at that moment in the session. And my therapist said, you know, I'm actually having kind of an off day today. I think, I think that might be you picking up on that. And it was a total, I can't even tell you it was such a light bulb moment in my mind on so many levels of like, whoa, she's a real person. She has her own emotional experience. <laughs> and that that's a separate issue. The, the difficulty of seeing your therapist as a real person with their own emotional experience separate from you is like a whole other developmental step we can get into another time. <laughs> maybe, maybe someday I'll feel that way about you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe someday you'll look, you'll look at this therapy dispenser and you'll see past just the buttons and knobs and LCD screens. And the earlobes, the earlobes, the giant earlobes. <laughs> <laughs> the giant earlobes. Um, but yeah, it was this amazing moment where I was just like, oh, this might not be my own, this might not be my own problem. Like I might just be empathizing with you on an unconscious level. And then when you realize it's not, it's not about you, you become so much more available to be compassionate toward the other person. Wow. So I, that, this has never really occurred to me. I, the way I've looked at it <laughs> has been individual humans with their own. Yeah, that other people actually exist. <laughs> I just think they're metrics. They're just <laughs> audience members in the live show, or, or, or yeah, yeah, metrics yeah. for our podcast. Yeah, ticket <laughs> ticket purchasers. You slip up sometimes. <laughs> yeah, oh right. man, oh man, a lot of <laughs> coronavirus is really giving the ticket purchasers of the world <laughs> a difficult time right now. <laughs> but but no, this idea that I may actually be having a totally fine, even keel day, but the person I'm with is having a kind of wonky day, and that makes me feel wonky, that in some way I am picking up on that energy, that emotion, and internalizing it, and not realizing and, and assuming that it's emanating from me. Yeah, totally. Whoa. To be continued, to be continued when we reach Momsville. <laughs>
I'm not saying that's like the only thing that's happened. Yeah, yeah. Given you the the interpretation to finally fix you, but I think that's a thing because I've looked at it more as this person being in an anxious mood means, for example, they're not acting as warmly to me as they mm-hmm. usually do, and that makes me feel very insecure, which is a little bit of a different mechanism. I, I think the underlying mechanism might be pretty much the same once we once all we right we'll get all to, together let's table it because we're going to get to some very apropos real world examples as we get yeah. to my quarantine experience with clara because that's yeah, okay. yeah that's so are we done are we done with the new york trip i think we are actually done because it was yeah that's the story i prayed my heart opened I saw her as this amazing, wonderful person. There were moments where it felt a little overwhelming, just in not so much the intensity, but just the duration of the unmitigated time with each other. And she was, oh, this is what brought us into this is, yeah, I would be feeling kind of a little bit, really what it was, was feeling drained. I remember it was one day, it was maybe her third day and I'd slept, I'd been sleeping well. Often in the past when I've spooned women, and, and I am an aggressive spooner, like an <laughs> almost over the top. Beth, who we talked about in previous episodes, did not like me to sleep over because I spooned her too. She couldn't sleep because yeah. I was so. You're like uh, you're and, like those ramen spoons that are really deep and curvy. <laughs> exactly. It's, but with Clara, the spooning was stellar, and I slept really well. Like Ooh. we, we yeah, can you, it was. A, can you a, sleep while spooning? often not but with her i could oh. with her i i could and yeah we really it was this quite bl- blissful deep sleep i mean i'd wake up occasionally have to shift around and my arm would have fallen asleep but like we were just totally entwined oh, so nice. third or fourth day of the visit i'm sleeping well and i realize i'm just drained exhausted and i say something like i don't know why i'm so tired i slept really well and she said well this is kind of tiring this can be kind of depleting so to me it didn't seem so much like i was picking up on her energy and internalizing it it felt more like oh i'm having an experience that's puzzling to me because my logical mind says well i slept well i shouldn't be tired and she's bringing in a new perspective as she so often does in this case that well yeah it's draining just spending this much time with someone especially when you're not used to it mm mm-hmm. mhm and I was like, oh, yeah, like my average day in New York is I wake up, I do my prayer meditation, I do some writing, I you know do some career oriented stuff, you know, trying to get bookings, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I usually don't see another person until the evening when I go yeah. out to perform. So the, you know, other than four hours a day or so, I'm usually alone in my apartment and now I'm constantly with someone and having these very, again, the conversations we have, they're wonderful, but they're intense. And so it was another moment where I just appreciated her wisdom. I I keep coming back to that word because that's really what it it feels like to me is she just kind of has a sense of things that I miss. And yeah, it was a great visit. And so we left that visit feeling things had deepened considerably. And we were just so excited to have this period of time where we were going to be in San Francisco, leading our own lives, but having our lives entwined with each other. And we talked about what it would be like, you know, I was going to be doing shows four or five nights a week. She has a lot of 
performative obligations as well. So it's like, oh, we'll see each other after shows. And then on days off, we'll go hiking. And I envisioned it like, you know, we'd see each other probably four or five times a week in some capacity, but we'd also have our own lives. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like a, a much more optimal, healthy way to let this relationship flourish. And then some people decided to eat pangolins who uh <laughs> is that what it was i'm not judging a, uh, it hasn't been conclusively what? traced but i think what? that's the leading candidate what is a pangolin i don't even know if i'm pronouncing that right they're these adorable scale covered mammals that are have been hunted mercilessly because their scales are considered to confer some sort of medicinal properties uh, I think mostly in China and their meat is a sign of affluence, even though the mm. meat is apparently horrid, putrid tasting. And until recently was considered something that you wouldn't, it was considered a, like you'd only eat pangolin if you were, if you were dead broke, but now it's become this sort of status symbol. Huh. And so I was supposed to come out to San Francisco mid-March, March 15th. I was coming out here to do uh, run at a theater of the mushroom cure in a new show. And even a week in advance of that, it was like, well, it, it maybe it'll happen. And then a few days before it was clear, it wasn't going to happen. And at that point I had a decision to make, not my favorite thing. So <laughs> I could still come out to San Francisco. Everything's lined up. I have got the plane ticket. I've got the housing, but I thought about it and I'm like, well, in the absence of shows, like, what is my life really going to be like out in San Francisco? And it looked like a, a lockdown was going to be coming soon. And I thought about it and I realized the only reason I'd really be coming out would be to spend time with Clara. But Clara, as mentioned last episode, is, first of all, she has her own very vibrant life here. She knows a lot more people out here than I do. And she's also in an open relationship. She's ha- has someone who she loves deeply. And so I decided that, well, this is a conversation I need to have with her. But I will say this in the context of OCD, I obsessed about this for several days. So I was considering going out to see her, going out to the Bay Area, or the other option was getting a cheap house in Martha's Vineyard, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And in the off season, it's deserted and beautiful. And it, it afforded me the advantage of being closer to my family who they live in suburban Boston. So for several days, I really tried to just make this decision in my head. I was like, well, should I go? Should I not go? And then Friday, the 13th, the day before I was supposed to fly to San Francisco, I was like, let me just talk to Clara about this. I didn't want to talk to her about it before that because I felt like I'm in OCD land. And ultimately, the only way out of this is for me to make a decision. And when I'm engaged in OCD, it's dangerous for me to try to talk to other people too much about what I should do to try to get Hmm. opinions from other people. And so I, and it's also, I, I was leery of potentially bringing in this virulent, forgive the adjective strain of OCD that I have, having it infiltrate this precious relationship I was building with Clara. That's interesting because it, you know, taking the OCD spiral out of it, it would certainly sound normal that you're you're planning on coming out here for a run of shows. The shows get canceled. Now you're thinking, well, really, the only reason I'd be going out there then is to spend time with this woman. It seems natural that you would involve her in that decision-making process. It does. It does. And I think this highlights another feature of the OCD, 
or bug, you could say, but I guess it's all bugs with OCD, all drawbacks. Well, Make those not bugs entirely. There, there, are, there are benefits from OCD, and this is another topic, but there it, it can serve in some capacities. But certainly sure. in this, which is that once I start spiraling with OCD decision-making, I get so muddled that even logical courses of action, I start to question those, things that may yeah. be healthy, proactive things I could do. I become uncertain about those. So in yeah. my mind, it was like, I just got to figure this out. I basically have to bite the bullet. I have to make the decision, feel uncomfortable. But no, you're absolutely right. Her, this is a, her, her involvement in this is not uh, trivial. And so finally, Friday night, I remember I finished shows. As it turned out, the last night I'd be doing shows, we don't know for how long. And I got home and I was looking at, you know, orbits and thinking, should I cancel my ticket? Should I not cancel my ticket? And finally I gave her a call and it was, it was beautiful. She just clarified everything. We had just such an open, frank conversation and it was clear. She said, yes, you know, I, I am involved with this other person, but he understands that these months were going to be our time. You know, I was going to be spending more time with you than him anyway, because you're only going to be in San Francisco for a few months. And so I do want to spend it with you. Mm-hmm. I want to quarantine with you. And what a weird sentence <laughs> that would have sounded like even a month ago, but now it's uh quarantine has got to be the word of the year for 2020, I think. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So it was, and it just, I felt so good after getting off that phone call because one, now I had clarity and two, it just, again, gave me confidence in this woman who just really is, she certainly would describe herself as neurotic and yeah, I guess maybe she is in some ways, but she just seems to cut through a lot of stuff and, and, and have a, a certain, I keep using this word clarity. Clara, the clarifier. Um, right. Maybe that's why. So that is a pseudonym. And may, may, there wasn't a conscious decision about why I chose that. Maybe that is why. Interesting. And so, yeah, it made me feel getting off that conversation that just like we work well as a team, even in this, like we, we just communicate really well and I had clarity. And so, okay. So I flew out Saturday the 15th. And let me give a little bit more context though. She was, so yes, we want to quarantine together. But then the question was, well, should she come out? Should we both go to Martha's Vineyard? Because if it's going to be a long lockdown, being really out in nature seems pretty appealing. If there's no, none of the conveniences or comforts or enjoyments of society are going to be operative anyway. We're not going to be going out to restaurants or comedy clubs. I'm not going to be performing. We're not even going to be seeing friends. Why not go to a really pastoral, beautiful environment? Mm -hmm. And she was actually pretty excited about the idea of going to Martha's Vineyard. She's never been, but I sent her some pictures I'd taken. So the next morning I have a plane that's leaving at 3.30 PM and I'm emailing people in Martha's Vineyard, seeing if we can get a cheap rental. And I hear back from a few and it's not going to work out. And so, okay, fine. I'm taking my flight to San Francisco. It's a relatively pleasant flight until about halfway through when I get this stab of anxiety and I think, wait a second, we should have gone to Martha's Vineyard. Why am I flying from one metropolis to another metropolis in the face of an imminent pandemic. No, we should go out into nature someplace where there aren't many people. This is a mistake. I should have, yes, I couldn't have found a rental for Martha's Vineyard immediately, but I should have delayed my flight a day, found a place, had her come out to Martha's Vineyard. Besides, I love Martha's Vineyard. I'd love to share it with this woman. And yeah, it's, it's painful. 
when passing you know, it, when passing a global pandemic one simply must go to martha's vineyard <laughs> it's really the place to be <laughs> once oh you haven't quarantined until you've quarantined <laughs> on the vineyard yeah oh it really it it really was just i was in agony and i knew it was ocd and so i used some of the tools that i use and one tool is writing i wrote about it i i wrote down my fears i'm afraid i'm making a mistake i'm afraid these are gonna be the ramifications and then i prayed around it i prayed for the willingness to let this go and it worked that obsession dissipated over the course of the flight you're closer so to god. i thought you're closer to god when you're on an airplane so he hears <laughs> right <us>. 49 that's <laughs> true that's true that's yeah that, that's one of the advantages of being an astronaut is basically your <laughs> prayers are in, answered within minutes right to the front of the queue yep yep it's really you know it's this whole elite thing it's really it's, god it's is, really why uh, they go into it yep. <laughs> God is not a socialist, clearly. <laughs> All about geographic proximity. <laughs> and I land, and she did pick me up, and immediately the doubts came in. And the doubts this time, I will talk a little bit about them because I think they do have some relevance to how this all plays out. The doubts were simply that, oh, it doesn't feel the same as it felt before. It doesn't feel like we're relating as well. There's not this level of sort of breathless excitement talking to each other. There were silences as we're driving from the airport. I had never experienced a silence with this woman, or I had, but the silences were these very pregnant silences where we, I, we'd just be looking in each other's eyes for, you know, for 30 seconds and smiling at each <laughs> other and enjoying each other's presence. This was... Not quite awkward silence, but the silence of, oh, we don't really have that much to say to each other. Oh, Completely foreign. We'd never experienced that before. Yeah. I sometimes, I, I've experienced that and it terrifies me. It's a totally normal thing. Like having uh, having a moment of awkward silence with a, with a woman. But I, yeah, sometimes uh, that feeling instills me with panic. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't engender panic in me so much as this kind of feeling of, Oh, well, yeah, this isn't, this isn't what I thought it was. Why isn't this, why, why don't we have this connection? And we go to the grocery store to stock up and I'm noticing other women in the grocery store. I'm noticing some very beautiful women in the grocery store. And my mind is saying, wait, you're going to quarantine with this woman but look at all these other women here. You're going to quarantine with like, are you sure about this? Are you sure? I mean, it's so insane. Like, like my mind thinks I can be like, uh, you know what? You know what, Clara? I'm not sure about this. I'm going to go talk to the girl in the express checkout lane. Let me see if I can pick her up and convince her to quarantine with me. <laughs> you know, we have so much in common. She also, she also likes Brazil nuts. <laughs> Big Brazil nuts, man. <laughs> And I'm very aware, of course, that my mind is doing this and how insane this is. I'm about like, <laughs> this is it. I'm either going alone or I'm going in with this woman, this woman who I had so many feelings for and I've appreciated her so much. And yet in this moment, it's feeling like this may be a, a huge fucking mistake. Yeah. And that's when the terror starts to come in. But again, I know this is what my mind does. So I'm telling myself, just push through, just push through. And we get to the house and it's okay. It's okay, but it's not 
amazing and wonderful. Now, to be fair, when she her last visit to New York, it also wasn't amazing and wonderful off the bat. And part of that, I think, is a normal reacclimation process. Yeah. This relates to what I've talked about, where there's a danger in having too much virtual contact in a long-distance relationship. Yeah. Because, yeah, you're building up this avatar of the person, but then when you see them in real life, there's this disparity that has to be reconciled. Yeah, because you still... You... Yeah, in you feel text. Com- comfortable with the avatar, I think is what it is. I feel like I know this avatar. I'm comfortable right. with this avatar, but the avatar is not yeah. her. Yeah, I mean, I we were talking in another episode about how you went through your early teenage years before this was a feature, but I, from the very beginnings, was on AOL Instant Messenger with girls I had crushes on, and so I feel as though I've been learning this lesson my whole post pre and post puberty romantic life is that you can get really deep with someone virtually and then still and feel tremendously awkward when you're with them in person yeah and and in fact i i think it's not only still i think it's a because probably in some ways or some cases where because you've gotten so close with them virtually it feels more awkward the contrast when you're in their presence and who are you what 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 is this thing we've built that doesn't feel like we built anything Mm -hmm. here the only way adam strauss now connects with women is sitting cross-legged on a cushion (laughs) across from them stone cold sober making deep penetrating eye contact (laughs) penetrating eye contact (laughs) that's also the way you make love it turns out they are one and the same so it's this phenomenon of of reconciling the virtual versus the flesh and blood person. And I, I think that's part of it. I think it, it would have felt a little awkward. There's a little bit of a readjustment period under the best of circumstances. But the thing I was totally ignoring here was these were not the best of circumstances. Yeah. It was <laughs> it it was it was very different having her visit me in New York at a time when my life felt wonderful. I mean, I have a great life or had, and hopefully will again soon. I don't have a day job. I get to support myself entirely with my art. I have a great deal of freedom. I can travel where I want. I have many good friends. I love performing. So when she visits me in New York, mid-February, all of this is in full force. And there's no expectation that it's things are going to get anything but better in the future. And she has a good life that she values. And now suddenly everything, the basic circumstances of our existence have shifted radically and not for the better. And we don't know how long this is going to last. And so clearly that was a factor there. But it's very telling, I think, that I didn't even consider that as a factor. All I'm aware of is it just doesn't feel like we're really connecting and maybe this woman isn't everything I thought she was or maybe our connection isn't everything I thought it was. And I think that really goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago with the tendency to take on other people's anxiety and let it sort of infect you or, or, or make it your own. There is a narcissism inherent in the, the way that your OCD works. And I don't mean narcissism in the kind of colloquial way. 
<laughs> I don't mean it. There is a healthy type of narcissism. No, hundred percent. Yeah, healthy narcissism <laughs> is just not, Jordan's like that's not what you have, but there is that does exist. <laughs> <laughs> there uh, absolutely healthy narcissism is self esteem, self love. But is that healthy narcissism, or is that a different construct altogether? Um, psychoanalytic theorists, ha- I have read, call that healthy narcissism. So okay. it's, I am using the word in a fairly technical way that I've, that I've seen it written about, um, yeah. to refer to, yeah, self-regard, attention to the self. There's a healthy amount that we all need. We all need self-love, self-esteem, self-confidence. But there's, you know, there's obviously a really extremely unhealthy type of narcissism that is the Donald Trumpian kind. But there's another kind of narcissism that's much more, it's much more of a childlike narcissism. And I say childlike because it is a feature. It is a feature. It's a normal feature of childhood development is going through a stage where you feel as though you are the only thing in the world and that anything therefore that is happening inside of you around you to you is your fault or your responsibility. And again, we'll come back to this concept over and over when we vacation in mom town. But for now, are we vacationing there? Or are we relocating there permanently? <laughs> do we, do we we're, get to at least, <laughs> we're at least going to get a timeshare. <laughs> We'll be going back for three months every year. We're gonna get a timeshare. It's a, uh, it's right next to um, what's that place in Florida that is just like a mega city, a retirement mega city, Century Village. Century Village. Mom yeah, Town. I, Mom Town is adjacent to Century Village. So, yeah, we'll be coming back to this, but yeah, this kind of this normal childhood type of narcissism. I think that's really a feature of your OCD. And I say that with all the compassion in the world, because it's it's absolutely a a type of thinking that I experience at times too, is the, the way that you could, the way that you could be in the early brewing stages of the most catastrophic global disaster to happen since world war two and that doesn't even register in your awareness and you're and you're feeling anxious and that doesn't even register in your awareness just like ah no her eyebrows are all different this time we're not connecting no it's just uh i should go back yeah and you say it's a it's a feature of the ocd but i think it may be more more basic and fundamental than that i think this is something that i have I think it interacts with the OCD and it may fuel the OCD and it may sometimes be triggered by the OCD, but I think it's, it maybe runs deeper and, and operates also independently of it. And I think that will, yeah, as I get more into the story and I think this does bring us to momsville and this is, yeah, become more clear. And that also, that also speaks to another question. I think we're going to come back to, over and over, which is, is the OCD, do we understand it to be a discrete entity unto itself that, you know, lives in a certain quadrant of your brain? Or do we understand it to be a manifestation of something deeper? Just a particular flavor of a deeper 
imbalance. Yes. And, and I don't know if it's necessarily an either or. I think yeah, I think you're probably I, right. Yeah. I think it's something, I think it is a manifestation of a deeper imbalance, but it also has assumed a life of its own. And so it can now operate even in contexts that are divorced from the deeper issues. Let's say those deeper issues have to do with caregiver, primary caregiver relationships and romantic relationships, but now it can flare up over, I mean, again, now it's a lot better. But at its worst, it could flare up literally over the decision of, should I get a sesame bagel or a poppy seed bagel? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to it project. It becomes an addiction. Yeah. And, and an addiction, I, I look at an addiction as something that becomes self-reinforcing. That's why addictions are so hard to break out of. Yeah. The more you engage I mean, think, in addiction, the deeper in you get. And the deeper in you get, the more you engage in it. Yeah. And it's harder to immediately see the very deep connections of a sesame seed or a poppy seed bagel, how that might, how that might be wound far into your psyche and your childhood development. It's, I can't, it's not as easy to project mom shit onto a poppy seed bagel as it is to project mom shit onto Clara. Yeah. Yeah. They all do have holes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was for four or five seconds. I was like, don't say it. I was like, don't say it. No, that's because, you know, some, yeah. some of your dirty, some of your dirty comic jokes leave me unsettled. I, that a dirty joke. Just, I think that was just good, clean fun. Yeah, good. I'm glad you agree. So <laughs> I, I think you could have laughed more, but we'll just add some extra laughter in, in, in the post edit. <laughs> People listening to the podcast. It's just me and Jordan, and then I say that line, and like 70 people laugh. It's like a sitcom laugh track. <laughs> we need That's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So, I'm in this, I'm in Whole Foods with Clara, and all of these doubts are coming up, and I'm not even it doesn't even enter into my mind as a possibility that this could have to do with this, this horrific context. As and oh right, I think we left the I think we left the supermarket, but we're at home, we have dinner, and it's fine. There are moments of connection, but it still feels different. It feels different. And I am still finding a little bit of OCD, even as I'm back there with her. I'm like, well, maybe we should still go to Martha's Vineyard. And that first night we actually talk about it and she's open to it. And we start looking at real estate listings for Martha's Vineyard. You know, it's dirt cheap to fly right now. We could fly there and we're considering it. But I remember the overall tenor of that first night was two people trying to connect, but this undercurrent of distance and anxiety, neither of us acknowledging it, but me certainly at least being very aware of it and it feeling these doubts. And the next day she actually went to work. She had a day job and it was turned out her last day at the day job. And so I had some time alone. And once again, I meditated and I, I prayed the same prayer. Open my heart. Be willing to feel what I'm feeling. Be willing to open my heart, even with these doubts and these fears. And she came back from work. She came back. We drove out to Marin and it was mostly silence the whole car ride. Hmm. And I'm trying to fill the silence. And I am filling the silence, but it feels forced. It feels like the opposite of what we had. Mm -hmm. And I'm feeling increasingly insecure. 
because I think what was happening in hindsight was this comes back to what we were talking about. She was being quiet. I should also mention, I may have mentioned this on a previous episode, she has premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So premenstrual time for her can be not just, you know, low mood and that sort of thing, but could actually be like, it's well managed now, but at times like could be almost suicidally depressed. Mm. And she was uh, premenstrual at this time. And so I knew this, but even with that knowledge and even with the knowledge that there's a global pandemic, I'm taking this very personally. The fact that she's not being so effusive in her affections towards me, that we're not having this great conversation, I'm starting to feel like, oh, maybe she's not as into me as I thought she was. And when I feel insecure, I I try to get reassurance. And I think the way I was trying to get it was just by talking more, trying to engage her more. And it wasn't feeling like it was really reciprocated. And it just, it felt like we were on different pages in different worlds. And I'd never had that feeling with this woman before. And it felt awful. And I'd had so many, I mean, as you know, I love nature to a degree that almost feels sexual at times. Like I just want to just get up into nature. Like I, I, I it, the joy I feel in nature. And so we went and did one of my favorite hikes, the Dipsy Trail in Marin. And I had fantasized about this hike more than I had fantasized about having sex with Clara. No joke. I had <laughs> imagined in my mind what it would feel like. I've done this hike so many times. I've probably done this hike 40 times over the last four years, but I've never done it with another person. It's always been alone. And one of the sadnesses for me has been, wow, there's all this beauty here and I wish I could share it with someone. Mm. And now finally I was going to get this experience that my heart had longed for of sharing this experience with a woman who I have deep feelings for. And I'd imagined everything about what it would be like, the light filtering down through the redwoods, the first bend in the trail where we see the open Pacific, the sunlight glinting off Bolinas, uh, the, the, the lagoon, all of this. And it was nothing like that, of course. It was me trudging ahead awkwardly, increasingly anxious, while this woman who I feels like I don't even know is walking behind me mm-hmm. and me trying to keep a happy face on it, talking, but it just, yeah. I've had the thought before in my own relationships that the feeling of being alone in the presence of someone else, especially when that someone else is a partner, is for me one of the most desperately uncomfortable feelings I can imagine. I it's it I can't even put words to it right now and I would like to unpack it more in in a future episode to try to understand better why that feeling is so intolerable. Part of it perhaps is that the expectation that this should be the last person you'll feel lonely with. And the fact that you do, I mean, maybe it even highlights sort of this existential loneliness that we all have. The, the let's get a little junior high school smoking weed for the first time philosophical that we are all alone in the world, that our reality consists entirely of our experiences and sense impressions and thoughts, and no one is privy to any of that. It sounds like you were a much more sophisticated junior high school pot smoker than I was. <laughs> I think this is something you've talked about previously is how when you're alone with somebody else, it highlights the hopelessness and it brings those thoughts into your head of like, oh man, if I can't get it right, 
like if I'm if I'm if I can't feel comfortable with this person, then I I might be truly hosed, and I might this might be my fate for the rest of my life, and that yeah. is a deep dark place to be. So let's end on that happy note. <laughs> on that happy note, <laughs> good work. And we yeah, good well we still today. haven't we still haven't finished Clara, but we are we are wending our way through Clara Land. We are getting there. All right. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Talk to you next time, buddy.